Man, so I'm so excited to begin a new series this month. The new series we are beginning is The Taming of the Tongue, Taming the Tongue. We are so excited to, to get to this aspect of the book of James. So we just finished our remarkable faith series, and I pray that your faith in general, as well as your faith in particular, has more clarity to it, more understanding, and that you feel stronger in your faith. Now, after we've completed that second chapter, we're moving on into the third chapter of the book of James, and this is the place where James begins to cover the tongue. Now, many times we've heard the tongue discussed, we often hear the power of the tongue or how strong the the tongue is or how strong your words are or life and death is in the power of the tongue. We always hear that. But I've often thought that knowing that the tongue does in fact wield so much power and as much power as it does, why don't we preach more messages on disciplining and exercising great discipline over what wields so much power and so much oftentimes destruction? I realized as I was reading this text that it takes a significant amount of discipline and it is a significant process in the life of a Christian to be able to tame the tongue. There are words of edification that we all should speak, but I think we also know that there are also words of harm that we often speak as well. Not only are there words of harm that we speak that intentionally hurt one another, But even teaching false doctrine or having false beliefs that are not based in the Bible, that's actually the most harmful kind of abuse of the tongue you can have. So what we want to do is to talk today specifically about what the discipline process for the tongue looks like and focus in the first area of our teaching on what it means to be a teacher and the taming of the tongue for a teacher. And that's what the title of the sermon is today, The Tongue and the Teacher. There was a frog that was sitting across a pond one day, and he needed to get across the pond. And so as he sat on the edge of the pond, he tried to think of some innovative ways to get across that pond. When he looked, he saw two rather large birds picking at a rather rather large stick. And he thought in his mind, you know, if I can wrap my tongue around that stick, I can get across that pond just the way I need to. And when he submitted this idea to the birds, they thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. You're a pretty smart frog there. And they said, okay, we're with it. We'll help you get across the pond. And so that's what he did. He wrapped his tongue around that stick, and as they flew up into the air, he was in the air as well, getting across that pond. Now, there was a man sitting on the side of the pond, and he thought this was the most fascinating sight yet. Hey, Elliot. He thought this was the most fascinating sight that he had ever seen in his life. And so when he looked up, he saw those birds flying across with that frog attached to that stick. And the man looked up and said, whose idea was that? And the frog, in his pride, opened his mouth to tell him it was his idea. But in the moment he opened his mouth, he fell from that stick right into that pond. See, the same tongue that was able to get him out of trouble was the same tongue that got him right back in trouble. Very often in our lives, it's the same scenario where the tongue that we use that gets us out of trouble, that gets us out of danger, that gets us out of harm, is the same tongue that gets us out of work, that gets us unemployed, that gets us divorced. The the tongue is often the thing that brings us great blessings, but unless we exercise great discipline, it is the exact thing that brings us great displeasure in our lives as well. 
And so what I want you to see today is that there must be careful attention for us to be able to tame the tongue. That brings us to our scripture for today, James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James begins this scripture with the negative statement saying, not many of you should become teachers. The word he uses here is didaskalos, which is the noun form of the word didasko, which means one to teach with authority. If you've been to any of our Bible studies before we launched, you've probably heard that word before. He is admonishing his brothers in the church not to become teachers if they are unable To control their tongues. He is not telling them this now for no reason though. He's saying because those of us who become teachers. He said we. We who become teachers. The reason you shouldn't desire to be a teacher too quickly. Is because there is a greater judgment that falls on us. Who teach the word of God. Now. This is a very specific charge to any man who desires to teach the word of God. But it is also a general charge to every Christian in the body of Christ who desires to teach other people about the word of God. You better be careful what you you say out of your mouth, because when you are claiming to speak the word of God, it brings a greater amount of judgment to us. Now, why is there a greater charge and a greater judgment for those who are speaking the word of God? There are several reasons. But the most important thing to see is that the word of God is our only tool to communicate the word that God has spoken to everyone else. That is the only tool we have. More importantly... It is the only tool that I have to be able to communicate the gospel to believers. I can't receive some rhema word, some arbitrary word that is not found in the book that I think will have some applicable principle to your life. The only way that I can communicate to you effectively what God has said throughout all eternity is found in 66 books. And so if there is a misuse and if there is an abuse of what scripture says, then I am distorting for you and to you the very voice of God. That's why teachers have a greater and stricter judgment applied to them. Because if I say it, I better be sure that God said it. That's why you'll never hear me say, the Lord told me to tell you. I will say it's found in this book and in this chapter and you can go to it in this verse if you need to know what the Lord is saying. Now, James knows That the untamed words that come out of our mouths come at a great cost to you. And it comes at a great cost to me and us in general. And I want you to understand this. He got that principle from his brother, Jesus. That will move us into our first point today in seeing the importance of taming the tongue. First thing I want you to see today is your tongue will tell on your heart. Your tongue will tell on your heart. 
Whether you're a teacher of the word vocationally or a lay person or even a non-believer, this is the principle of life. Your tongue will always tell on you. Why is teaching a greater danger to those who have an untamed tongue? Because they're constantly using their tongue to say what they say God is saying. And anybody knows this. The more you talk, no matter how hard you try, the more your heart is revealed. That's why I always tell people, if you want to know a person's intentions, just talk to them long enough. Most of the time, we don't know people's intentions is because we text them, but we don't talk to them. See, texting is very measured. I can think about what I need to say. I can form the sentence very well. But when I'm having a conversation with you, there is a limited filter process for you to be able to get out what you're actually thinking into what you actually say. Let's look at Matthew 12, 34. This is Jesus speaking. You brutal vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will either be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. See, James addresses the tongue specifically here. Because it's very common in Jewish culture that you identify the exact object that was responsible for the indiscretion. But he knew just as Jesus had already spoken that the tongue is a product of the heart. The tongue won't say what the heart doesn't actually feel. And very oftentimes. We can measure what we say and we can kind of get the words out that we want to say. But if you talk long enough, what is in your heart, no matter how clever you may be, no matter how great with words you may be, your heart is going to tell on you through your tongue. See, when it says out of the abundance of the heart, the heart is always synonymous with the spirit and the abundance of the heart is representative of what's in there. What's in the heart It's your motivations. It's your intentions. It's your desires. James K.A. Smith has a book out right now that says you are what you love. What do we think? We think you are what you think, but you're not because even your thoughts are a product of what your heart. Everything you do comes out of what your heart already is. So, what is Jesus trying to communicate? No matter what you try to say, your lips, your heart, through your tongue will always give your true intentions away. Jesus expresses the same sentiments as James when he says that we will have to give an account. Now, what we often hear is we have to give an account for every deed I've done in my body. And so many of us, because we are moralists, we can control what we do. Look, some of us have aged out lust. Let's just be for real. We just aged it out. Spirit is willing, but in a lot of cases, the flesh is real weak. 
So some of us, like, I've aged that out. So I don't have to worry about what my body wants to do anymore. But Jesus didn't say give an account for everything you do in your body. He said give an account not for just every word, but every careless word. Not every hurtful word. Not every damning word. Every word that you spoke without care will have to be given an account for to Jesus Christ. See, he immediately puts parameters on the words we speak that we are already uncomfortable with. I'm uncomfortable with that. How many times in the carelessness of our day does somebody cross over on us in the lane and we say, you idiot? Stupid. What are you thinking? See, those are not necessarily hurtful words because the people we're addressing it to can't even hear it. But the words are careless. How about this? How many of you have ever said something like this? If I weren't a Christian, I would do this. You got to be glad I'm saved. I would tell you about yourself. See, we think that it's a noble act that we haven't actually done anything. But the Bible says that if you felt it in your heart, you already did it. See, it's not a noble act for you to tell somebody, you better be glad I'm saved or I would tell you off because Jesus said, you might as well go ahead and tell him off because if you felt it in your heart, just because it didn't make it to your lips doesn't mean that you are not guilty of what you felt in your heart. See, I've been reading a book recently about respectable sins by Jerry Bridges. What are respectable sins? It's all the sins that we decide to sweep right under the rug because, you know, it's not adultery. It's not lust. It's not this. It's not that. I didn't kill anybody. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't robbed anybody. But we always sweep the sins of the tongue right under the rug. And it's probably the sin that most of us are most consistently guilty of. Why? Because we use it every single day. You realize we speak about 25 to 30,000 words a day. You say, well, that's a lot of words. Yeah. The difference is, men say theirs throughout the day. Women don't wait till 5 o'clock to say all theirs at one time. So they don't get their 30,000 out until about 5 o'clock. So we got to, by the time 5 o'clock rolls around, my 25 is gone. Okay, Chris is not in here. That's good. I'm just making sure. Look, <laughs> why, why is the sin of the tongue bad? I think that's what we have, to, we have to reconcile because a lot of times I realize that I get up here and I try to bring conviction to you. But if you don't actually believe what I'm telling you with crucial evidence, no matter how well I preach it, no matter how much evidence I present to you from the Bible, if I don't classify and qualify what is being said, you won't actually believe it. You'll hear this sermon, but you'll think it was for somebody else because you're never guilty of sins of the tongue, right? Why is Jesus trying to get us to understand this? He's telling us and we're missing it, all right? Everything, every sin, every lustful word, every lying word, every curse word, 
every hurtful word was pumped from our hearts into our mouths. That's what he's trying to get us to understand. Most of us, in trying to tame the tongue, merely try to tame our words. Jesus is saying, unless you get to the heart of the issue, it doesn't matter if you don't curse them out if you said it in your heart, if you felt it in your heart, and if it made it from your heart to your mind and didn't make it to your lips, you are still guilty. That's what he's trying to get us to understand. That's why James treats the taming of the tongue as another test of faith, because the only way the tongue will be tamed is if the heart itself is first circumcised. Unless the heart is circumcised, your tongue will do and say whatever it desires to do and say. Again, we see that there is an importance for teachers to especially make sure that the word, their words are tamed. And that brings us to point number two. An untamed tongue is the product of an untamed life. Does that make sense? An untamed tongue is the product of a life that is untamed. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 4 and 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions. Now this text is twofold, but first I want you to look at it from the aspect of a teacher. The false teacher does so because they are incapable incapable and unwilling to teach the truth. They cannot teach the truth because they themselves are not living the truth. Their lives are untamed and so are their tongues. And of all the offenses of the tongue, there is no greater offense to God than to stand in his pulpit and say what only pleases the hearer. That is the greatest offense of the tongue. It's blasphemous. See, there is no conviction for a false teacher from the Holy Spirit because guess what? They don't have the Holy Spirit. And any teacher that stands in a pulpit and comfortably will tell you anything about the prosperity gospel, anything about name and claim it, anything that only fulfills your human interest apart from the word of God, they are a false teacher. And I say that with all confidence. See, I was recently watching a clip. Y'all probably know the pastor. I won't say his name. I'm very inclined to, but my dad has told me to stop saying people's names, so come to me after church. But there was, a, there was a pastor who was preaching recently, and he was, first of all, wasting a sermon preaching about how Nipsey Hussle was in the image of Jesus Christ. I'm not making that up. He wasted a sermon on that. He wasted the pulpit for that. And then he mentioned that some of his deacons were displeased with that fact. And one of his deacons in particular said, well, don't you know that he cussed? And from the pulpit, he said, H-E-L-L, I cuss. And you think that his members were upset? No. They were ecstatic about it. 
because they assault a teacher who suits their passions. The next thing he said, one of his deacons said, well, don't you know that he smoked weed? He said, I like a little Hennessy every now and again. And again, they went crazy because he immediately placed himself in a lower position so that he could look familiar to the sins of his people. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says they look for themselves teachers who will suit their own passions, which means I don't need the preacher to be more mature in the word than I do. I don't need him to have a more disciplined lifestyle than I do. I need the preacher to be just as sinful as I am. So when I come to his church, I can be perfectly comfortable in my sin because he's comfortable in his. See, The notion for many people is to bring the pastor down to some identifiable level as if we are superhumans. We are not. We must exercise discipline from sin in our lives as well. But the last thing I will do is ever make you comfortable when you walk into the office or into this church and say, baby, it's okay because I do it too. Because you want to know what happens if I do that? I have already disqualified myself from this pulpit. Now, there are many teachers who don't think that they should have a greater discipline and a greater maturity in their lives. But the Bible says that we actually should. That's one of the reasons that we are teachers is because we are able to exercise through the Holy Spirit a greater level of discipline and maturity because of our greater knowledge of the word of God. Very often when you see a teacher who is immoral, listen to him preach. He'll tell on himself. James 3 and 2 tells us this, just in case you think I'm making it up. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, if I were a lazy teacher, if I didn't do the work, if I didn't do the research, I would say, see, I can't be perfect. There we go. Nobody's perfect, y'all. We're just forgiven. Nobody's perfect, and no one is. But that's not what he's saying. James is saying here, we are all, because of our fallenness and carnality, we are all subjected to stumble in various ways, including the man preaching right now. That's what Paul also intimates when he says that we all sin. And we all fall short of the glory of God. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when he says, listen, all temptation is common to man. I'm a man. It's common to us all. But then he says, but if if anyone, if there is anyone who does not stumble in his speech, then he is a perfect man. And you say, well, see, look, that automatically removes the parameters. I can't be perfect, so I'm going to stumble in my speech. But it's good to know the language. 
The word that he used here for perfect is really a poor translation because the word in the Greek is telos. Telos literally means mature. And so if you read it with that word, if and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man. He is a mature man, able also to bridle his whole body. James is not presenting that to you as some unachievable feat through the Holy Spirit. The responsibility of a Christian is that we are bridling our whole body, including our tongue. That's why very often the person who cannot control what they say very often can't control what they do either. And it's always a matter of time before they show it to you. Now, why are they unable to control what they do? Because you need something to help you control what you do. Hey, y'all, it's the Holy Spirit. And because there are so many proclaiming teachers, preachers, pastors who are up teaching their own vain philosophies, which, by the way, Paul said in Titus, don't do that. They get up there and they're clever with their speech, but there ain't no Holy Spirit to back them up. That's why the biggest churches, the biggest pastors always fall. It's no coincidence. So, he is saying that the mature Christian, the elders of the church, the overseers, the pastors, the teachers, must have a greater level of maturity than the lay members. But it doesn't excuse the lay members from being mature either. Because just as much as I have a responsibility to control what I do and control what I say, so does every Christian have that same charge. Listen to this. He wants to ex- include strict parameters on those who desire to teach the word. Whether you teach from a pulpit, whether you teach a Bible study, whether you teach a Sunday school, in any kind of way that you include yourself as a teacher, you are subjected to strict restrictions. It's one of the reasons why you can't just jump up and be a teacher or serve in a position of a teacher, from elder to deacon. I was talking to a guy recently, he was 16 years old. He's a preacher. He didn't even know scripture. And I think it's a very damning thing if we as pastors, preachers, and teachers because people have a zeal to put them in a position to only speak words that ultimately only bring condemnation to themselves. I want you to listen to the qualifications for teachers or elders or overseers. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1. The, tr- the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the evil of the devil. This is Paul laying out the responsibilities of overseers or elders and teachers. One of the things that I want you to see very clearly is that Paul lists several qualifications for a teacher before he ever says able to teach. Let's look at them. He says they must be above reproach. You know what that means? There shouldn't even be the shadow of hint of anything scandalous in the life of the teacher, of the preacher, because they're always accountable to others. You want to look for a preacher, a teacher, or a Christian in general who's setting themselves up to fall? There is never any accountability. He says you must be above reproach. Husbands of one wife. Sober-minded, which means you are able to make both spiritual and rational decisions. Can't do those apart from each other. They must be self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and then, he says, and able to teach. So what is he trying to get people to understand? If you have failed in all those other areas, don't even worry about your ability to teach. Because your eloquent ability to put together nice, careful words means nothing if you cannot bridle your whole body. That's why I don't care how good they sound if you look at their lives and their lives don't look as good as their words sound, then you cannot subject yourself to their teaching. He is not a drunkard. He is not violent, but he is gentle in spirit and nature. He is someone who, he isn't someone who starts arguments or fights. He doesn't love money. He must be able to completely manage his household. And he cannot be a recent convert. Or in other words, he can't be spiritually mature. You see the connection to James here. Perhaps you don't. It's fine. These are all the characteristics of a spiritually mature man and a spiritually mature teacher and Christian. If a person, teacher, or lay member is unable to exercise discipline in their tongue, that is because they are not exercising discipline in the other areas of their lives. Unable to bridle the whole body because they have been unable to bridle their hearts. Only the person who is spiritually mature is able to at all times bridle their tongues. And they are only able to do so with their tongues because they do it everywhere else. And that brings us to the third and final point today. A silent tongue from a battered body. I don't know if you've ever met a really, really disciplined Christian, I mean a really disciplined, and why there is a great amount of peace and a joy about them when you look at them, 
It's almost like they've been beaten up. It's almost like they've been in a fight their entire lives. That is especially true for true preachers and teachers who understand the severity of the call to teach the word of God. There is a callousness to us because we have beaten our bodies into subjection through the power of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing loose about our behavior. There is nothing loose about our lives. There is nothing loose about our tongues because the Holy Spirit has caused us to bridle ourselves and beat our bodies into obedience to the Holy Spirit. John Knox, the first time he ever got to preach, stood up in the pulpit and he wept until they had to get him out of the pulpit because he realized he was enormously unqualified to say anything about God at all. And it was merely the grace of God that would have allowed him to do so. See, we always seem like we've been in this never-ending fight because we have been. It has been with great care but also tenacity from the Holy Spirit that we have viciously beaten and battered our bodies into subjection. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. This is my favorite part in this scripture. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul describes the discipline of the body in the same way we would describe the discipline of an Olympic athlete. Why are they the best of the best? Why are they the fastest? Why can they jump the highest? Why are they the quickest? Why are they the strongest? Why are they superior to other athletes in the rest of the world? Because they have beaten their bodies into absolute subjection to what they wanted to do. Paul says that if we are able to do that for a perishable wreath or crown, saved from the help of the Holy Spirit, how much more with the motivation of being acceptable and pleasing in the eyes of Christ, should we be able to discipline our whole bodies and make it subjected to the Holy Spirit? This was a portion of the scripture when I got to it, when I was writing this sermon, that brought a great amount of conviction to me because y'all know I work out a lot, a lot. And I get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I go work out, sometimes for two hours at a time. I have constant body aches. I have constant joint aches. I'm always exhausted. And I start thinking, 
I'll do all that for vainglory. If I don't have a hundred billion times more tenacity to discipline my body for the Holy Spirit the way I discipline it for myself, I'm disqualified. I'm already disqualified. It is unless through the Holy Spirit that I have exercised great discipline and beaten my body up into subjection, into submission, that even when it feels like it wants to rise up, it is the strength of the Holy Spirit that condemns the flesh to be where it should be. Now, why do we look beaten up? Let me tell you why. Because your flesh is not like a one-round knockout. You may win this round, but you better believe a new day is coming. And the same fight that you were engaged in on yesterday, you will have to face it again. And I'll wake up every day with the Holy Spirit ready to fight my flesh. So why Paul described it. How do you say it? He says, it's a war. Where did he say the war takes place? In my members. So, you say, well, this is supposed to be about taming the tongue, but you've talked more about the flesh and the heart than you did the tongue. It's because unless you can bridle your, your, your flesh through the Holy Spirit from what is coming out of your heart, you don't have a chance to bridle your tongue. And so there are a lot of people in this room today who probably came in here because you wanted to have your tongue issue solved. Your tongue issue will not be resolved until the sin issue is resolved in your life. The tongue issue will not be resolved until the sin issue in your life is resolved. That's how you tame the tongue. Next week, we will talk about the strength and the power of the tongue. And we will go even further. You say, well, we go further? Oh, yeah, this four-week series. We will go even further in how we should subject the tongue and discipline the tongue so that through careful and intention exercise, the tongue will do and say exactly what we need it to do and say. Let's pray.